reach over, touch your neighbor, and tell them the best is yet to come. <clears throat> the best is yet to come. Now, here's the reality. <clears throat> Do you really believe that? Yes. I don't know. It's been a tough year, Pastor. I don't know. There's, there's some things that have happened this year. Not sure what 2019 holds. Man, I'm struggling. I, I, I know that here, but I don't know if I know that in here, that the best is really yet to come, right? I struggle with that. I'll just be perfectly honest with you. I'm like, I know that's true, but I'm just like, Lord, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's been a tough year. It's been a tough year for us as a, as a family. It's been just some praise God. Not for babies, though. Right, or maybe that was an amen to the tough year that we've had. But we've just we just had a tough year. You know, we've uh, we've brought uh, my wife's parents; they're here now, and so we've we've dedicated a lot of time to being involved in their lives, and, and is there in a assisted living facility and helping out with them. And so, while it's a blessing to be able to spend this time with them and to serve them, it also just requires extra time and responsibilities. And uh, and our kids at all these various stages of life that they're at are always doing something new and keeping us on our toes and and, and we're trying to figure out how do we raise these kids and do things well. Um, but there, there's, there's been uh, really um, spiritual warfare just, just hitting us as a family, um, perhaps like we've never seen before. And it's just been kind of a tough year. And uh, it's been a tough year for us as a church. I was talking with one of our ladies, uh, Ms. Ms. Dottie, and I think she was saying we, we've nine people uh, from this family have gone home to, to be with the Lord, many of them from uh, one particular community group, the Jenny Butler group, um, and uh, and we've just it's, it's been hard, and 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 even those who are still here and not gone home to be the Lord, man, I've I've watched people who have been in in, in strong places in their lives, in the prime of their lives, and and watched age and disease and and diagnosis creep up on them, and watched them go through hardships, and and many of them are your friends as well, and it's been a difficult year, and um and then we look at our world, right? I mean, it's, it's a hot mess. Some people say, like, man, it's, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Like, what is going on in our world? We see, we see political division like we've never seen before. We've seen all kinds of weather-related tragedies. And just even last week, a tsunami. We've seen mass shootings in places more frequently, in places we never thought they would, they would be. Uh, the stock market is going crazy. I mean, like, it's just poverty and wars in other countries. It's like, Pastor, really? How could you say the best is yet to come? Because 2018 was crazier than 2017, and I don't know. I don't have a whole lot, right? And, and do you really wrestle with that? Is really the best yet to come? Well, the answer is yes. And what God has been reminding me is, is this. This very simple and realistic truth is this. The, the best is yet to come, folks, because Jesus is coming back. The Bible has declared, and Christmas is this reminder that God has made promises all the way back from, from when he chose the people of Israel and he chose Abraham. And he said, I'm going to work through Abraham and all nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. right? And God has said, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a Redeemer. I'm going to find a way to, to get people back in a relationship with me. And God made that promise. And time and time went by, but God kept good on his promise. And he sent Jesus as the Messiah to come and rescue the world. And Christmas is that reminder, God keeps his promises. And while Jesus was here on the earth, he made a promise. And he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come back. I will return. And then just promise after promise. And I'm here to let you know that God has also made a promise to never leave you nor forsake you. And so if Jesus doesn't return in 2019, God is still with you with whatever you navigate in 2019. God has promised not to leave you, but to help you navigate through all of 2019, to help me navigate all of 2019. Amen. And then he's also just given us this promise that we that we cling to, where it says in the book of Revelation, Jesus said, he says, him who's seated on the throne says, behold, I make all things new. And, and our promise for the hope of heaven and glorified bodies, all things new, that body that is causing you so much pain, all things in that body will be made new, praise God, right? All things made, the relationships that we've lost and loved ones that have, have, have uh, gone home and that we've uh, been uh, stripped away from, all things will be made new for those who know the Lord and trust Him. All things will be made new. Those relationships will have all of eternity to enjoy, to enjoy the presence of God. And the Bible says in, in His presence there is fullness of joy according to the Psalms. In His presence there is fullness of joy. As King David said when he prayed in Psalm 23, right? To, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, right? These are the promises that God is going to make good on. So how can we say the best is yet to come? Because God has made a promise. He's a promise-keeping God, and he won't fail us in 2019. And Ruth is really a reminder of this promise-keeping God that the best is yet to come. And so what I want to do is we're going to kind of navigate the story. I'm going to try to do a 30,000-foot view of Ruth. And so we're going to track back. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you, as Miss Stacy did, use a pew Bible or, or your mobile device because we're going to look through all four chapters. Ruth is a little bit different than the other ladies. The other ladies sort of have a chapter or, or two. You know, they're kind of mentioned here and there. But Ruth has a whole book dedicated to her and, um, and four chapters in that book. And so we're going to weave in and out. And I want you to see the various verses there. If it's your Bible, I'd encourage you maybe mark some things there, make some notes there in the margins. That'd be great. If it's not your Bible, please don't mark in it. Um, I mean, if it's your neighbor's Bible, go for it. Just... I don't know, just write a love note next to him. Um, and if you're single, then maybe it'll be a great start to 2019. Um, just trying to help you out. And so um, let, let's, 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 let's dive into the book of Ruth here. Um, and so look with me at verse 1, right? It says, uh, in the days when the judges ruled, that's an important historical reminder there. Uh, in, in our Bible, the English Bible that we use, uh, Judges comes right before Ruth, and it's and it's chronologically about the same time because, again, it says here, in the days when the judges ruled. Oh, I need you to know that this is an important thing because this is a violent and turbulent time for Israel as a nation. Why? Because they start to wander. They've been in the promised land now for a while, and, and, they, and they're going on the straight and narrow, and then they start to wander. And as they start to wander, God has to bring discipline to them to bring them back on course. And in fact, what Judges says is it's a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You think our nation is a mess. You think what's going on in our world is, is a mess. Look at the book of Judges. You see all kinds of awful things, violent and turbulent times. And it's this up and down. You see this, this uh, pattern. They wander. God brings a judge, brings a leader to them, and, and he helps them or she helps them get on the road that God has called them to walk. And so it's just up and down, up and down veering and turning, and then people are just going crazy. And so that's an important time. No, this is what's going on in Ruth's life. And then on top of that, you see another important thing here. Look what else is going on. In verse 1, it says, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And so there, not only is this a violent and turbulent time, 
but there's a famine on top of that. And in fact, the names there of their children, they named their children, children Malon and Kilion, right? And you know what those names mean? Their names mean sickly and frail. If you're a kid in here today, would you like to be named sickly and frail? There's a lot of promise for you, kid. I mean, hey, the best is yet to come, though. Go out there and get them, Tiger. Go out there and get them. That's right, sickly and frail. You know, like, I mean, it's like, wow, this is encouraging. Now, they could have named them in, in, in just like in present reality, saying, hey, this is the time we're born into. You're, you're named this, and maybe there was a promise attached to it that you won't always be that. We don't know, but it's. It's, it's reminding us of what this family is going through, sickly and frail. And then it says they went to Moab, the, the country of Moab. And this is also um, a, a good historical point here. This is uh, across, they're in Bethlehem, and, uh, and this is across the Dead Sea or across the, the Jordan, depending on which way you want to go. And this is a, 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 a dark place. Moab is a difficult place. Nothing good happens there. The Israelites do not like Moab. They stay away from it because evil and wicked things happen there. It comes actually from Abraham's nephew, if you will, Lot. You guys perhaps will be familiar with this guy named Lot. And he didn't get into a whole lot of uh, good behavior and, and relationships. But Lot had an incestuous relationship with the daughter, and she gave birth to a guy named Moab, and then the Moabites lived there. But then they continued to worship other gods in a similar way that the Canaanites had, which we talked about the other week. And so they worshiped these gods like Chemosh and Molech, and again, child sacrifice, child burnings, and, and just a wicked people. And so now, because of the famine, this family has made a choice to go into this even more wicked nation that's in a dark place. And so it's filled with hard times. And so they travel there. And then look with me at verse 3. Verse 3 says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And so this obviously is a difficult thing. But there's like some encouragement there, right? She's left with these two sons. And, and, and if you've been here throughout the series, you realize what a vulnerable position widows are in and how they, they are in a patriarchal society. Completely, Women are completely dependent upon the men that are around them and, uh, and, and, and especially sons because they will help take care of them in old age. And then look what happens in the next verse. Verse 4, right, it says, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And then verse 5, both Malon and Kilion, what? They died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I've got to imagine for Naomi, like this is the nail in the coffin. Like, okay, it was hard enough losing my husband. Now I've lost my two sons. All means of support for me are over. Right, and she voices this, and she talks about this. Right, I'm too old to get married again. Uh, you know, nobody's gonna choose me. Nobody's gonna want me. I also probably don't have any parents. And for a widow in the society, there's nobody to provide for. There's no 401k. Right. There's no. Uh, there's no Medicare. There's no Social Security. All of her hopes and dreams, all of her security, were were wrapped up in her two boys. And now all of her hopes and dreams, everything that she loved, is now buried under a pile of dirt in a dark land. Yay. The best is yet to come. She won't be able to marry again. I wonder, have you had some nails in what feels like a coffin for you this year? I wonder if you have buried some things this year. I know 
many of you have buried the loved ones this year, but have you buried something else? It just feels like this thing in my life is dead, and I don't think I can recover from it. I don't think I can go on. All of my hopes and dreams, all of my plans have been smashed. The Bible tells us this, and most of us would think her story is over at this point, right? I imagine this is probably what Naomi's thinking. In fact, she leads on to say where she says later on, don't call me Naomi. Naomi actually means sweet or pleasant. And she says, call me Mara when she heads back to Bethlehem. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt with me bitterly. And she says, I left full, and now I've come back empty. I'm just empty. I don't have anything left. I don't have anything worth living for is what Naomi's saying here. And again, most would think her story is over. But I'm here to let you know, and the Bible is here to know, and we have the book of Ruth as a reminder to let us know her story is really just beginning. And there is a tiny glimmer of hope, and I believe she hangs on to it. And look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Look at this. Watch this. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. There may be as a glimmer of hope here. She's still wrestling. She's still bitter. She's still thinking God has rejected her. And in some level, she is probably rejecting God. And, and But she, she still knows where to go. She goes back to the promised land. She goes into the presence of God. And even though she's doubting and she's wrestling and she's discouraged, she knows where to go. And I just want to say, look, if, if you're here and this is your first time here and you're like, I just had a terrible year and I'm going to church today, you, you made the right move. And, and I want to say to you, if, if you've been here for 50 years and you're struggling, you made the right move to come today. Because when you go to be around the people of God and you go to be in the presence of God and the word of God, you, you know that there's a little bit of hope. And, and I think this is just evidence um, that, that Naomi has a little bit of hope. And then we see that the two daughter-in-laws actually want to go with her. At this point, it says they both went. They all of them went. And then look at verse 7. Look what she says. So she sent out from the place where she was there with her two daughters-in-law. So they all go together. Then they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt uh, with the dead and with me. In other words, you've been great daughters-in-law to, to the husband. It's been a great time. But my life is over, but you still have hope. You still have a chance. You're young. You can find a man again. Um, but you don't want to come with me back to, to Israel because the Israelites don't associate with the Moabites. You're not going to be accepted in our society. You're going to be rejected by our people. Stay here with your people. You've got family here. Find a nice Moabite man, and so, and so stay here with them. But I'm going to go back, so you don't want to come with me. My story is over. Yours could perhaps have a future. But little did she know. And so notice what happens. Um, in verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, even to you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. They obviously had a, a good relationship here, didn't they? Verse 10, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi, in verse 11, said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Right? She's like, I don't have any kids in my belly right now. Turn back, my daughters, verse 12. Go on your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, right, she's admitting she doesn't really have hope. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, 
If there was some kind of miracle that I got a husband tonight and bear you sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Again, she, she sees and feels that God has abandoned her, and she's wrestling with that just as any person would be. And so she, she navigates that. And then verse 16, look at verse 16 with me. The Orpah left, uh, but Ruth clung to her. And verse 16 says this, kind of one of the most famous passages here. Ruth said to her, do not urge me to leave or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you will die, I will die. She's saying, I'm going to stick with you until you die, right? And, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me. In other words, she's making an oath here. She's making a promise. She's, she's pinky swearing, for those of you who like to do pinky swearing, right? I didn't know what a pinky swear was until I met my wife. And, um, and one time she made me pinky swear, and I was just about to go into it, right? Like, no big deal, okay? She was like, now this is the ultimate. And I was like, whoa, I don't know if I'm a pinky swear then. Like, this was it. And so uh, Naomi is saying to Ruth here, you're about to pinky swear with me, okay? And, 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 that's, and, and Ruth is saying that. No, I really mean this. I'm going to stick by you. I want to be here for you. I'm going to stick by you. And, and, and I'm, I'm invoking the name of God in this issue here, that I'm going to stick with you. And, uh, and so that's what she says there. And many people say this is uh, Ruth's conversion moment. This is her being a new person saying, I believe in the one true God. Your God is now my God. And an important word there, if you were with us the other week, you noticed the capital L-O-R-D, right? Remember I, I, we said look for that in the Bible? Capital, all caps there means that's the, the personal name of God. That's what God revealed his self to as Moses. I am that I am. Jehovah or Yahweh, right? May the Lord, in verse 17, may the Lord, she uses the personal name here. And so she's saying, your God is now my God. And I'm using his name personally. I'm, I'm trusting in him. And I believe that he's called us and I'm going to stick with you. And so you can contrast Ruth with Naomi, right? Ruth is, is, is faithful, is promising, and hopeful. Naomi is, is bitter and empty. And you see this contrast here. And then look at verse 22. We have a hint of some more hope here. Verse 22, it says, So Naomi returns, and Ruth, notice how it labels Ruth. And you can see this as you navigate this whole text. Ruth, the what? The Moabite. The, 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 the author of this book is pointing this out. She's a Moabite. Yuck. That's kind of the inference there. Ruth, the 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 uh, the showgirl from Vegas. Ruth, the adult movie star from California. Ruth, the dancer from New York City. Right, all these sort of connotations, right, that we would label somebody with. Ruth, the Moabite. Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning. Of what? Beginning of the harvest. And this is the author here helping us see a little bit of good news. Maybe a hint of good news here. Why is that important? These women are now poor and destitute. They had a, 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 a couple hundred mile journey from where they were in Bethlehem or where they were in Moab now back to Bethlehem. It's a treacherous journey, all that sort of stuff for two women to make. They've probably used up all their food. They are, 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 are in all senses homeless. 
and, and, and extremely poor. Whatever food they had, they probably used up on the journey, and so they're going to be hungry. And look when they arrive, right at the harvest, right on time for God to provide for them. And another beautiful thing is that God has commanded his people in the book of Leviticus to take care, and we talked a little bit about this, of the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant, the foreigner. And how do they do that? In the book of Leviticus it says, when you harvest your fields, you go around, but you leave the corners and you leave the sides of your field. So like picture this, this is like a big field. All you guys are just grains of wheat. I'm just going to come harvest you guys in a second. And I said, but, but leave the sides, leave the corners for the poor, for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner in your land. And, and that's what he said to do. And so now they're going, and Ruth doesn't know anything about this. Maybe perhaps Naomi does. And, and there's a little bit of hope here. We see, man, we could get some food. Because God has commanded, shows us again about God's heart for the lowly, for the broken, for the weak, for the poor, the widows, the orphans. That's the heart of God. And God has said, you're my special people, right, to the people of Israel. I love you. But he didn't say, you're my special people. I love you only, right? No, you're my special people. I'm going to bless you so that you're a blessing to all others. And that's the same for us today. And then we navigate chapter 2, right? And if you'll follow along with me here, look at verses 1 through 3. We see a second flicker of hope coming. The narrator in verse 1 gives us a little hint here, right, to help people understand what's going on. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, a righteous man, right, a noble man, a man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz, right? And so that's a little parenthesis there. That's the little reminder as we head into chapter 2, chapter 2, not chapter 2, or chapter Ruth, uh, verse 2. And Ruth Ruth the what? The Moabite. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and glean. That word gleaning is kind of what they would do on the sides of the field there. They would pick up those things that were not harvested. Let me glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. In other words, I'm going to go out there and hopefully some farmer will, will show me favor and let me glean in his field. Because even though, listen to me now, even though it was God's command, how many know God commands to do all kinds of things, and we disobey every day? And so she's hoping on the fact that there's a righteous man who obeys God's word and will do what he said. And look at our society today, right? We, we hope that people will obey what God has said, but we can't always depend on people to do that. She's saying, I'm hoping to find favor in someone's sight, someone who actually obeys God's word, because if they do, we'll be in a good situation. And, uh, and so, verse 3, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And look at this. And she happened, this is a key verse here, she just so happened, or as it turned out, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And again, why is this significant? A few weeks ago, we talked about this idea of Leverite marriage. In other words, if there's a widow and her husband dies, and, and it's gross to us, right, but she can marry a brother uh, and, and then have children by him, and then be provided for. And so it was an ancient form of taking care of the weak and the vulnerable, and that's that's how God is set up. It, it's like totally disgusting to us, but it worked for them. Just praise God, we weren't born in those days, right? And um, you're like, yeah, you should see my brother-in-law, okay? And, um, and, and so, but but this is this is good news here. This is really good news. And and um, Boaz isn't necessarily the brother-in-law. He's sort of a distant relative, as it were, um, but he still can partake in that, and he can help 
them in this situation. He can also buy back their property, which was most likely sold, and that will give them further ways to be provided for. And so this is huge, right? This is the second flicker of hope that someone is able to provide and protect them. But notice how it's phrased, right? It just so happened, or as it happens. And perhaps Ruth doesn't even see this yet. Ruth doesn't even really know whose field it is. She doesn't know anything about it. And then look what happens in verse 5, right? Verse 5, it says, Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? In other words, I've never seen this girl before. And why is this girl in our, in our field here? Right? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young... What? Mm-hmm. Almost, can you hear the disdain? She's a young Moabite. She's one of those people. She's a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Oh, gosh, these people, right? Verse 7. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves and after the reapers. And so she came, and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. And then verse 8. Boaz then went and had a conversation with Ruth. And he says this, now listen, my daughter. Do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. This may seem like an ancient, you know, pickup line. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know that it was. Um, but, but at least it was a way to protect her. Because, again, remember this is the time of the judges. At, at, at around the same time, and we're not sure to be exact, but, but, but the book of Judges um, reminds us that there was a woman from Bethlehem who was beaten and abused and cut up into 12 pieces. And so this is a dangerous time to live. It's a dangerous time to be a woman who at any point could be snatched up and be abused and nothing could be done about it. Nothing could be said about it, especially in a patriarchal society like that. And so he says, look, I want to protect you. Stay in my field. And there are some young women here and stay with them. This is a way to protect you. He calls her daughter uh, as a way of, of kind of uh, committing to her and saying, hey, look, I'm probably a little bit older than you, probably a little bit younger. Most scholars would guess he's probably close to the age of um, uh, of Naomi, uh, we, don't, we don't know for sure, but either way, it's it's a way, it's an endearing way. It's not necessarily a pickup line, although some people can see it that way. Um, and if you want to try that this week, if you're single, go go for it. See, just write me back, let me know. Like, hey, don't go glean another field, girl. I'm all the field you need. All right. <laughs> verse nine, verse nine. It says, "Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them." Have I not charged the young men to not touch you? Again, this is sort of a reminder here that he's protecting her. Hey, even my own workers, right? Even my own workers, the way men treat women, I've told my workers, don't touch that woman. Treat her with respect. She's here. I know she's a Moabite, but you respect her. Don't touch her. And, um, and, then, and then he goes on. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have tried. In other words, I'm giving you my permission as the owner of this field to go get a drink. I'm, I'm giving you permission to do all this stuff. You have my blessing, right? And then verse 10, look at what she says, her response. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, why have I found favor or why have I found grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am what? Since I'm a foreigner. I'm not an Israelite. I'm an Israelite. I'm a foreigner. Why have you taken notice of me? Boaz answered her. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told. In other words, the rumors have been going, right? Bethlehem's not a big place. Rumors have been going. Naomi came back. You know, this other Moabite girl is with her, and everybody died. But then notice how it comes back to him, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And then verse 12. This is a prayer, right? 
He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, this is an important phrase here because it's going to come into play later, under whose wings you have come and take refuge. In other words, our God is a God who takes in those who are in need of help, those who are sick and weak and wounded and poor, and he comes and he shelters them under his wings. You see this throughout the Psalms. God is referred to as one who has wings and, and as baby chicks can come and find refuge and shelter underneath them. And he says, this is what you have done in coming here. And I acknowledge that and God bless you for that. And that's a beautiful thing. Now skip ahead with me uh, to, to uh, actually in verse 14, he invites her back. So she goes to glean some more. Verse 14, he gives her a meal. It says at mealtime, Boaz said there, come here and eat, right? So so the, the other poor people are not permitted to eat with the workers, right? This is the work crew. He says, come eat with the work crew. And look what he gives her, right? Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine, right? So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her the roasted grain. Imagine how hungry this girl is, traveling, homeless, poor, hasn't had a meal. And now she gets roasted grain. Then it says this, and she ate until she was satisfied. And then she even had some leftover, right? You and I despise leftovers sometimes, right? But she hasn't had leftovers in so long. Then verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man, saying to her, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach. In other words, hey, look, man, she may not know the rules about the sides and the corners. If she starts wandering off into the, the part that's for us, leave her alone. She doesn't know the customs here. Just, just be kind to her. Don't, you know. And, uh, and then look what he says to her in the next verse. He's really uh, showing his heart and his character here. In the next verse, it says, verse 16, and also if she pulls out some of the bundles, uh, excuse me, and also pull out from some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. In other words, we, we've got some extra grain, and I want you guys to kind of pick this up and drop it on the ground for her, and, and that, like, some extra for her. And so you see his heart for her. You see that, that she now has a chance to be redeemed. And keep reading with me and see what happens here in chapter 2. And, um, and then navigating verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That's about 30 to 40 pounds. Could you imagine that? Right? She's carrying these two sacks. I imagine 20-pound sacks. She carries the back. She goes back to see Naomi, and look what happens, right? A barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Look at the character of Ruth, right? She had all this food at the lunch table with the workers and with Boaz, and, and she's like, I'm going to bring some Tupperware with me to take back, right, to Naomi. Right? I got to eat the roasted grain and get the, the wine and the bread and all that sort of stuff. And I'm going to take some of this back. I'm going to share that with Naomi. Right? I'm going to encourage Naomi. And again, you can see the character of Ruth here. And then it says this, right? In, in verse 19, her mother-in-law said, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice. In other words, this is awesome. And so she told her mother-in-law, but it's about to get even more awesome. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and she said, the man's name for whom I work today is Boaz. And right, and that is a, a bomb of good news. That is a bomb of hope. Look what Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, verse 20. Oh, man, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. He's our kinsman redeemer, our family redeemer. And again, this is a, a point to that liberate marriage. He can rescue us by buying back land that was part of our family. He could marry you. Like, there's all this connotation. 
This is the man that could lift us up out of poverty. Not just one week of roasted grain and this, because that would that would go out after a while. But this is this is hope here. This is somebody who could resurrect the dead life that we thought. I thought my story was over, but now there is great hope. He could bring new life to us that we hadn't even thought of, bring us out of despair, bring us out of hopelessness and poverty. He is the one that can break the hold of death that has been chaining them. This is huge good news. He is their redeemer. And for us, he is a reminder of who Christ is, right? That we had the chains of death around us, a sentence of death. Our story was over, and yet Christ has come to us, and he is the one that can buy us back from our sin that has changed us, buy us back and restore us to a right relationship with our Creator. And then verses 21 through 23, look what happens. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close among my young men, and they have finished all my harvest. In other words, he gave me even more favor. In verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be what? Mm -hmm. In other words, she's telling her the rest of the story, and they're realizing, man, this is we have protection by this man. He said, Stay in your field. Keep going. Don't go to any other fields. And verse 23 says, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz and gleaned there until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived there with her mother. And so this goes on for a period of, of months that she is harvesting with them. And then in chapter 3, Naomi, being like a lot of mother-in-laws, decides she's going to take a little risk, right? She sees, you know, maybe a little bit of connection. She sees some hope there, and she sees, man, Boaz has been really nice to us. I wonder if Boaz and Ruth maybe, you know, have some feelings. And if they don't have some feelings, I'm sure... You know, you know how folks like to play matchmaker, right? I bet y'all two would make a nice couple. And so Naomi is going to give her some advice. She's going to kind of push this relationship along and see what happens here and see if, if she can play the love connection, right? The love connection. And so uh, chapter 4, verse 3, uh, she, she talks about a plan there. In verse 3 it says, and here's her plan. Uh, she says, wash therefore. It's at the end of the barley harvest, right? And uh, wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak. And uh, some would say that's like, you know, you're not in the harvesting clothes, but you're in your sort of normal clothes or your dress-up clothes. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Verse 4, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replies, uh, all that you say, I will do. And, and again, for us in 2018, we're like, what on earth does this mean? Like, you know, I don't know what's going on. This is kind of awkward. It's kind of weird. And uh, and so what's going on here is the end of the barley harvest. He's in the threshing floor. He's he, he is obviously a wealthy man. He's sort of counting the money, if you will. The end of the harvest, look at all the stuff. We've got the piles of grain. Sometimes they would sleep there near the piles to prevent robbers from coming, especially in the times of the judges here. And so they're going to sleep near the grain. She says, look, I want you to go and uncover his feet, right? And, uh, and lay at his feet. And, and people, scholars have all kinds of, what does uncovering his feet mean? And all kinds of weird things like that. But but I think the, the simplest thing and the plainest text of the reading here, there's nothing inappropriate going on here. Nothing kooky, nothing weird, no innuendo. It, it's this idea in Eastern cultures, which they were in, is the servants would often sleep at the feet uh, of the man. And, and by uncovering their feet, servants were allowed to, they had a cloak, and, and, and they were allowed to sort of take the end of the cloak and sort of put that over them. And it was this way of saying, I'm here as your servant, but I kind of need a little bit of warmth. And servants were permitted to kind of put their cloak on them. And so she's coming to him sort of proposing in one way uh, by coming at night and saying, I am your servant, and um, 
I kind of like to be married, right? It's a very unusual um, form of engagement, right? I like to see this one on Instagram, right? Like, it's a picture of a man's feet and somebody laying there, right? Somebody like, I'm married, and there's no way I'd touch my husband's feet for any reason. Have you seen those things? And, um, and so it seems a little strange. All right, then keep reading with me. Keep reading with me. Uh, so verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, right? He's, just, he's got a, a, a plate. He's got a threshing floor full of grain. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled. I bet he was like, who's laying on my feet? This is kind of creepy. And he turned over, and behold, a woman laid his feet. And it's dark out. There's no lights. Okay, there's no little night lights there. There's no um, humidifiers or, or, or oil diffusers or anything like that, right? He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Notice the phrase here. Some would say cloak, but again, there's a direct connection to what uh, was said in the earlier chapter about the Lord's wings. Spread your wings. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. In other words, I'd like to get married, and here is a very, very humble way of saying that. And again, you see the beauty of, of, of feminine leadership here, because she's saying, I'm not abusing your authority here. I'm coming to you humbly and saying, I'd like to get this thing moving. My mother-in-law would like to get this thing moving. Are you interested? Right? Are you interested? And if not, then we can go our separate ways, but but you, you are a redeemer, and you have been so kind to me. Um, would you like to get married? And then he said this. You think he's going to answer yes or no? Or he's going to say, get away from my feet, woman. And um, Verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone out after young men, whether poor or rich. In other words, he says yes, and he says, man, I'm taken away. I'm taken away because I'm kind of an older guy, and I didn't think you were interested. You know, and that's why you need matchmakers sometimes, right? To get some people together, right? I was a little thick-headed when I met my wife and, you know, Pastor Lee and some other folks around here. Uh, some of you guys remember Joanna Jones and a few others, right? They were trying to, like, get us together, right? And I was like, no way. And so um, I thought she was too far out of my league, right? And uh, I said, no, no, I don't, I don't have a chance. And so maybe, maybe this is what Boaz thought. Here she's a young woman. She probably wants a younger man who can, you know, all this sort of stuff. She's probably not interested in me. And, and so... He says, man, this is you've done a kindness to me. You have blessed me by saying this. And again, he's pointing out her character, which is a theme you, you see throughout the book there. And, uh, and so he says, yes, let's, let's do this. And he said, but there's one small problem. I, I can be, if I marry you, but there's another family member who's closer, and, um, and he has the rights to marry you first. So I'm going to go to this guy and ask him if he would like to marry you and be your guy's redeemer and buy back your field and your land. And, um, and, and take all this stuff from you. And by the way, why would they need to buy back the field and land? Because probably when they left to go to Moab, they probably had to sell their field that belonged to somebody else. And now to buy it back, uh, that a family member, a kinsman redeemer could do that. And so chapter 4, uh, let's look at how this thing ends here. It's a beautiful picture. We'll make some applications. 1 through 6, it says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer, this is the other guy, right, who, who could uh, legally... Mary uh, her first and has the rights to the field and all that sort of stuff. The redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, hey, man, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And, uh, and he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. Because if you remember, um, I talked about this. There was this whole sandal ceremony where a, a woman could do this and didn't. She could spit on his face. There was all this done in, in front of the elders. Verse 3, 
Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab and is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I should tell you of it and say, but it in the presence of those sitting here, and I just want to do this in public, and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me, then I may know, for there is no one else besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. In other words, you got the rights first, I'm second. And he said, I will redeem it. So now, like the story, the plot line could change. What if this guy walks the field and wants to marry? And then Boaz said this. Notice what happens here. Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the what? The Moabite and the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in this inheritance. Verse 6, and the Redeemer said, eh, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance and take my right of redemption uh, for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. In other words, he said, I don't think I want to take care of a widowed grandmother, and I don't think I want a Moabite wife. And then I got to be responsible for her children. I already got my own stuff over here. I don't need any more. Uh, I don't need that field that bad. And so you take it, man. And, uh, and so he doesn't want anything to do with it. And so then uh, if you pick up in verse 12, in verse 12, it says this. They, they got married. Uh, they did the ceremony there. And, uh, and, and, and there's a connection there to Rachel and Leah and even to Judah and Perez. Verse 12 says, may your house be like the house of Perez, who was one of the twins that was born out of the Tamar and Judah thing. And who Tamar bore? Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you to this young woman. So verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then it says, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life. Look how their life was brought back from the pit, right? Look how they thought their story was over. But with God, your story is never over. The, the best is yet to come, isn't it? And a nourisher in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. In other words, this girl named Ruth is, is amazing. Who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child in her lap and, and, uh, and began to nurse him. And then there's a connection with the rest of the genealogy there and how they fit in it and, and then how um, they will give birth down the line to King David. And, uh, and that connects this story with many other stories in the scripture. And so the, the story of Ruth is really one of redemption, one of the greatest stories of redemption where there is hope, where there is promise and God working. So let me just give you three application points we can take into the new year. Number one is this, is, is the first one to look at the hope of, that redemption offers, right? The hope that redemption brings or offers. And this is that the best is yet to come. Wherever you are right now, whatever you've been through, whatever darkness is in your life, whatever burdens you carried in 2018, they don't have to define you, right? Your past, listen to me now, your past can tell you where you've been and can tell you what you've been through, but your past can't tell you where you're going. Your past can't dictate to you your future. And so if you have taken some bruises and some bumps, if you yourself have done some dumb things this year, it doesn't have to determine your future. There is always hope when there is redemption and God is in the equation. The best is yet to come if we would turn to him. Think about Ruth and Naomi. They show up broke, homeless, uh, husbandless, starving and poor. They ride into Bethlehem, right? You know, in an old jalopy, if you will. And the brokenness and the bruises in our life can tell us where we've been, right? And they are part of our story. We don't deny those things, but they can't tell us where we're going. They can't determine our future. And here's what I know. There is so much brokenness 
in this room right here. There is brokenness in my life. There is brokenness in your life. And, and we love to hide it. And there are bruises amongst all of us. But I'm here to remind you that God is in the business of restoring and redeeming and bringing hope out of broken situations. Maybe your brokenness this year has been relationships that have been torn apart, uh, in divorce, in death. Maybe your brokenness is a sin and an addiction, and you hide it well, but you know you're carrying that around. Maybe your brokenness is in your children or your grandchildren and the things that are going on in their lives. Maybe just for you it's just darkness, a spiritual haze and depression that's coming over your life, and that you don't want to say anything about it because you've been in church for so long, and if you were to voice this, other people would look at you strangely, you feel. Maybe your brokenness is in your own health and you have gotten diagnosis this year or recently and you just are feeling like the story is over. But I'm here to remind you, the best is yet to come because God has not left you or forsaken you. What happens is oftentimes we don't want to deal with the brokenness in our lives. And here's what I do know is true. If we don't deal with the brokenness and the bruises, it will define us and it will determine our future because these things have happened to us and we're not dealing with them. And so they continue to write our story for us. But when we bring our brokenness to Jesus and we allow him to redeem them, then he writes a different story for us, one that we could not write. And so my challenge and my encourage for all of us this year as we reflect on this year and head into new years is bring your brokenness and bruises to Jesus Christ because then he'll rewrite a new picture for you. And then also I just want to remind you that God is not a stranger to the brokenness, right? He's a God who steps into the brokenness and the bruises. What is Christmas all about? God becoming man and becoming broken and bruised on the cross for us. This is not a God who's far off, but he comes broken and bruised for us because he doesn't want us to, to be defined by these things. And so our story is not over. And I know for many believers, especially dealing with sin, as I talked to somebody uh, in the past before, and they're dealing with sin and they're dealing with issues, and they're like, it's never going to stop. It's, my life is just always going to be this way, and I'm stuck with this addiction, and I'm stuck with this issue, and it's always going to be this way. And I know that wrestle. I know what that feels like, right? But just think about this for a second. God who flung the stars into existence with his very word, God who created the heavens and the earth, God who came a man in Jesus Christ and died on the cross to redeem you, God who split seas and raises the dead, and all of a sudden he comes up against your sin and he bumps up. He's like, oh, nope, nope, oh, there's Mackie. Can't, can't heal him of that sin. Yep, too difficult for me. Right? But sometimes we think that. We think, oh, God can't do anything with my situation. It's hopeless. And so we're looking about the hope that redemption brings, that the best is yet to come. God can change it. Secondly, and quickly is this, the shape that redemption takes. The shape that redemption takes. The shape that redemption takes is this. God often works in very ordinary things. The book of Ruth is unlike a lot of others in the Bible. There are no miraculous miracles, right? There's just mundane details. People dying, people living, people harvesting, people working, people eating, people drinking. That's it. There's no seas splitting, right? There's no dead being raised. There's no ears being cut off and put back. There, there's no miraculous sun stand still. Right? There's no great walls being knocked down by people who are marching. There's no exciting and extravagant miracles here. But God is showing he is still in charge of the very ordinary daily things that go on. God shows his grace in ordinary everyday things. Take, for example, the blessing and the grace of a good friend. That's what Ruth is, right? 
She is a faithful friend. And Naomi misses, she misses the grace of God working through a faithful friend and says, I will die with you. I'm going to stay with you until you die. And, and all Naomi can look at is what has, has, has been lost, and she can't see what God has provided for her. And she misses the grace of God in very ordinary things. How often do you and I miss the grace of God in ordinary things? That song we sung earlier, right, 10,000 Reasons. And I joked a couple weeks ago, like, we're going to name 10,000 blessings. Do it. Look over 2018 and think about the 10,000 blessings you had in faithful friends and the fact that you're still here in your eyesight, as diminished as it might be or is, or is in the process of being, whatever those things are, and count out those blessings. That's what the song reminds us to do. In the ordinary, God is always at work. Notice how it said right in chapter 2, she just so happened. That wasn't just so happened. It was God's hand of providence. They came to, to Bethlehem at the right time during the harvest. It just so happened that this field and all these things that lined up, God is in charge of your story. And he's going to use the ordinary details. So he's always at work. And so don't miss that. And, um, and then also it's just kind of a reminder, right, about Christmas. How did God come into the world to save a world? Did he come, again, with extravagant fanfare and trumpets in dramatic fashion? He came the same way all of us come. Born through the womb of a woman. God came the same way. He works through ordinary means he came as a helpless little baby wearing pants, right? Very normal things. But it was through those normal activities that Jesus saved the world. In fact, it's often said of Jesus, he was too ordinary, he was too human, he was too normal to be God. In fact, one person said, isn't this just Mary's son? How could he do these miracles? But that's the beauty of the incarnation, being fully God and fully man is that he came to identify with us so that we could see how God works in the ordinary. And also it's a reminder, God works on his own timetable, right? Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of waiting. The church learning how to wait well. If you were an Israelite at this time, okay, it had been over 400 years since God had spoken. They had prophets and prophets and miracles, all this sort of stuff. And then the Old Testament closes with Malachi and there's not a word. Not a word from God, not a prophet that rises up to speak the word of God. 100 years, and there were things that went on, and there were different revolutions and those sorts of things. 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, nothing from God. Did God abandon them? No, he was keeping his promise by sending the Messiah, by sending the Deliverer, the Redeemer, and he keeps all of those promises. So Christmas is a reminder for us to, to be people okay with waiting. There's a grace in learning how to wait. We teach our kids that at Christmas time, right? I bought lots of presents on Black Friday. I know, don't judge me. I see, I see that. I feel that judgment, okay? My brother's got to save some money here, okay? So I go out when people go out. And if I can get it for this price, why would I pay another price at a different time of the year? And so, right, I get these gifts for my kids, and they are for my kids. And I don't always wrap them, but sometimes they're wrapped. And, um, and, and those gifts are for my kids. But can they open them yet? And sometimes I want to. I'm like, yeah, this would be great to give it to them now. I'm so excited about the gift I bought you. But they have to wait. And so the gift is there. Sometimes under the tree, it's theirs for the taking. But they have to wait. Because God has a timetable that's far better than ours. And so wait for that. So the hope of redemption, the shape of redemption, and finally is this, just the change that redemption brings. Redemption brings change. And, and, and the phrase here is redeemed people become agents of redemption for others. 
the characters in here, Boaz, right? A worthy man, a man's man, a pillar in the community, an Israelite of Israelites. He's well-respected. And then you have Ruth, the Moabite. Remember the, 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 the showgirl from Vegas, the, the adult movie star from California, right? The, the, the dancer from New York City, right? The meth head from Amsterdam, right? This is, this is where she comes from. And, and, it, and everybody would be so easy to be prejudiced against her. But not Boaz. Why not Boaz? Why is he not prejudiced? Because his heart has been impacted by a redeemer. Because if you follow the genealogy, you know who his mother or his grandmother was? It's hard to tell in genealogies because they use the phrase mother, father um, for the same thing. His mother or his grandmother was Rahab, the foreigner Canaanite prostitute. He grew up with that story hearing grandma or hear his mother say, yeah, I used to be a prostitute, but God changed my life. He accepted me. He loved me right where I was. I used to be a Canaanite. I used to worship other gods, and I used to, and, and now I've been accepted as one of the people of God. I've been brought into a family that loves me. I used to be these things, but now I'm not. And so he doesn't view her. He doesn't view her as the other men in his society would. He doesn't view her as a parasitic outsider invading his country, just another mouth to feed, just a burden on the community. Why are these Moabites coming to our city? Nor does he see her as some of the other men would. Oh, a foreigner, an immigrant? We could take advantage of her. And she couldn't tell a soul. She doesn't know the rules of our country. She doesn't know how things operate here. Grab her and snatch her in the back of the field. She won't be able to tell anybody. But he treats her with dignity because those who have been changed by redemption become agents of redemption in others' lives. And we begin to view people through the lens of redemption, not through our own lens, right? That's what happens to most of us, right? But think about how you came to God. Think about how I came to God. I came to God dead in my sins and trespasses, according to the Bible. I came to him homeless, bankrupt spiritually. What was I holding in my hands except for my own guilt as I came before God? I had nothing worthy, and he accepted me, and he loved me. And I couldn't do anything to change it. But now that my life has been changed, I become an agent of change, sharing that redemption with others. And so may I encourage you, may I encourage you to view others with a heart of redemption, to view others. And especially now in our society, there's this rhetoric going around with evangelical Christians and what evangelical Christians stand for and all about. And to be honest, it's sickening. Because if we are not about loving people in the most desperate situations, in the most broken situations, if we're not about loving the outsiders and those who cannot help themselves, we have lost the gospel, right? We, we get this rhetoric going. It's like, we're going to help those who, who can help themselves. Well, the Bible says, I made a mess, and I couldn't do anything to fix it, and he sent Jesus to come in and fix my mess. And so the Bible is all about helping those who are weak and vulnerable. And I mean, and especially, like, I know this is a hot-button issue, but it's a biblical issue, right? We're talking about there's immigration going all over our TV and all this stuff's going on, and what is the, the Christian response to that? I, the political response, let that be what it's going to be. Build a wall, don't build a wall, but the heart of a Christian should be, man, there are thousands of people there, destitute and hurting. When are the believers going to rise up and say, those people need Jesus and they need love? And what's shameful is that the world is loving those people better than the church is. I watched this happen in college all the time. New people would come to college. And, and they were looking for friendships, and they would go to the Christians, and they would try to go to the church and try to get into the Bible studies, but the Christians were too busy doing their own thing and all that sort of stuff. And I watched the secular people, the non-Christians, 